thank you that you are Jesus. You are God the Son. You are the Messiah. You are the Lion and the Lamb. You are the Alpha and Omega. You are our Savior. You are our friend. We thank you that you are Jesus. And we celebrate you. We celebrate you. Not only did you come, not only did you live, not only did you die, not only have you been raised to life again, not only have you ascended, but you have penetrated our hearts and lives, and for that we are eternally thankful. And so we pray this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. We're in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. Last week, we uh, began this series. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and watch last week's sermon, listen to it or watch it, only because it's the introduction to Acts. So we talk about some of its historicity. We talk about who Luke is. I mean, Luke has written more in the New Testament than any other author. Most people don't realize that uh, in terms of wordage or verses, right? More than Paul, more than John, even though John and Paul write more books. Luke only writing two, but his wordage is larger than anyone else, which says, it says Luke's words to us are quite important and quite weighty, as all scripture is, but it just reminds us of who Luke is in that. We talked about the importance of the ascension, how the, the resurrection vindicates the incarnation and sinless life in, of Christ, showing that he's conquered sin and Satan and death, but the ascension, the ascension shows his kingship. It's, it's the authentication or the, uh, it, it's showing that Christ is indeed the reigning one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know about you, but I know it's hard to wait. I, I, I can have a hard time waiting at times. Today, uh, I'll be here most of the day. So I'll be here for a, a chunk of the day in services and then with the Karen, and I'll go home. And uh, after, when I get home, there'll be turkey cooking because Amy's mom and sister and our nephew are coming over. And uh, Amy's making turkey, apple crisp, all the stuff that goes with turkey dinner. And, It'll be cooking. I love the smell of turkey. And I'll get home and be like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Apple crisp will be cooking. Normally it's apple pie, but she decided to do an apple crisp this time. I love apple crisp too. I am, I'm intolerant of apple crisp, so I, I shouldn't have it, but I will. Um, and, and it'll just smell so good. And then, in fact, I find waiting so hard that at some point she'll ask me to carve the turkey. And I'll put four pieces on the plate and I'll eat one. And I'll put four more pieces on the plate and I'll eat one. And I'll do that for a while, and then we'll sit down to dinner, and everybody will say, have more turkey. I'll be like, I can't, because I just ate one, one for five, um, kind of all the way along. I sliced four for the plate, ate one, sliced four. And then, you know, you, you find out, because you're making the gravy. I like to make the gravy. I don't always do it, but then you're like, oh, we've got to test it. So you slop it on some of the turkey you're eating in the kitchen, hoping no one is noticing. Waiting is hard. It's hard when you're looking to you know, get married, and you're excited about it, you've found that partner, you're engaged, and you're anticipating that wedding day, you just can't wait for that wedding day, or you're getting your first apartment, or you're buying your first home, and the anticipation of what that looks like, or you've finished all of your studies, and now you're just waiting for graduation, and, and you're excited about, about what that looks like. And Jesus uh, said to the disciples that they're to wait. He said, I want you to wait because you're going to wait in Jerusalem. There's a gift the Father has promised that he's going to give you. John baptized with water, but now you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. And he says, I want you to wait. And in these next verses, verses 12 to 26 of Acts 1, Luke records for us what the apostles did while they waited. What did these 
people do while they waited for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. So 11 of them are there. There's a number of things they could have done. So they've watched Jesus ascend. Remember from last week's message, the angel said to them, stop gazing. Stop gazing. They were just gazing into heaven like, is he coming back now? Like he went up. They said, he said he's coming back. Wait, is it in five minutes? No one would have thought it's been as long as it's been. They were just gazing. The angel said, stop gazing and go wait. Could you imagine? I mean, I talked about this last week, but they were devastated when Jesus died. I mean, devastated. They thought Jesus was going to usurp the Roman rule. They assumed that the Messiah was going to rule in a kingly, earthly way. He would usurp the Roman rule. He'd take the Romans. He would stop them from doing what they were doing. He would reinstate Israel. Israel would be the world power. They assumed that some of them would then be ruling with him. They would all be in charge. And then he's crucified. And they're devastated. They're devastated because they'd watched him raise people to life again. They'd watched him cast out demons. They'd, they'd watched him heal people. And they're devastated. They're devastated. Because they've watched him die. And so they go and hide. And they're in hiding. And on the third day, he just appears to them. He shows up. And they're terrified. And he says, don't be afraid. It's me. Look. Look at my scars. It's me. And for over a period of 40 days, they watch this. And now they would have felt invincible. All right. They killed him. He came back. He conquered sin and Satan and death. I mean, whoo, Roman rule, you're done. Right? And last week we talked about that briefly because, again, they asked, when are you going to restore Jerusalem or Israel? When are you going to restore Israel? Because they're still thinking that. So they know how powerful he is. They know that he's just conquered sin, Satan, and death. They know that he is the supreme one. They've watched him eat. So they know they're not just seeing a ghost of some kind. And he says, just wait, and he leaves. And do you know how hard that would have been? He didn't tell them how long to wait. He just said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. After he died, what did they do? They hid. They actually went back to work. At one point, he finds them doing what? Fishing. And they could have done the same thing. They could have hid. They could have gone back to their homes. They could have gone back to work, but they don't. The Word of God says that they traveled about a Sabbath day's walk. That's about a quarter mile. They go to an upstairs room, and it's the 11 of them. And what do they do? It tells us. Now, I'll say this before I move on. This is the same list of disciples that you find in the Gospels in a variety of places. It's not always in the same order, but it's the same list. Remember, there were two Judases. Some of you might be confused because there's a Judas named here, but there was two Judases. And the James named here is James the Apostle who will be beheaded in the book of Acts. I don't believe this is the James that wrote the epistle of James. I believe that was Jesus' brother who wrote that, that, wrote that epistle. Um, so what did they do? Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. Remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, women go to the tomb. He's talking about those women likely. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
Jesus' mother has, has been a convert in this. She was a godly woman who loved the Lord and with his brothers, which means you can't believe in the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. It doesn't exist. I mean, Jesus had siblings. So they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, sorry, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. So I want you to note here what happens. One, they all join together. There's 120 of them. You needed 120 people to form a Jewish synagogue, a Jewish community. And so, and so to make the Jewish community uh, uh, viable, not, not just to form a synagogue, but make it viable. And so in their days, because these were all Jewish people that had been converted, they'd have been like, okay, we now have enough. God's granted us the, the validity to have enough to form this community. So they gathered together. They fellowshiped. They encouraged each other. I mean, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Some of them would have been there. Who else were these 120? We don't know. But maybe it's some of the people Jesus healed. Maybe it's some of the soldiers that crucified him. Remember the one said, surely this is the Son of God. We don't know who was there. But could you imagine this gathering? The disciples are there. The, the women who came to the tomb to see that the tomb was empty was there. Jesus' brothers were there. And then others who were part of his ministry were there, and they gathered to fellowship. And I bet they told stories. Stories of Jesus touching their lives. Stories of Jesus working in their lives. Stories of his resurrection. When they would see him, they were offering first-hand witness accounts. They were excited. This wasn't the hiding that happened after his death. This is an excitement waiting for the gift that God is about to give them. And as they wait for the gift that God is going to give them, they're anticipating it, and they're telling stories about Jesus. They're fellowshipping. They're just together constantly. When did you see him? Well, I was one of the 500. When did you see him? I was along the seashore. When did you see him? I was on the road to Emmaus. When did you see him? And they begin to tell accounts. We were at the tomb, right? Tell us again. Tell us the story of going to the tomb. Tell us the story of being the first witnesses. That's what's going on here. They're recounting the work of Jesus in their lives, and they're excited. They're fellowshipping together. Imagine if some of the people Jesus healed was there. They told the story of what it was like to be healed. What if Lazarus? Would it, it wouldn't surprise me if Lazarus and Mary and Martha were there. And Lazarus was like, they're like, so what was it like to be dead? Right? Lazarus, come on. Are you going to write a book? Right? No, I'm not going to write a book. I mean, I mean, there's just an anticipation that's going on as these people are gathering. It wouldn't surprise me if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus was there. They're the ones who took his body and put it in the grave. Nicodemus, what was it like to meet with Jesus at night? When did you convert? Because in John 3, he's a skeptic. In John 7, he's defending Jesus. At the end of the gospel, he's taking his body to bury it with Joseph of Arimathea. And they're recounting. They're telling the stories of Christ's work in their lives. And what are they doing? They've joined together constantly in what? In prayer. They're praying. They're praying. They're praying. They know God's going to do something. They know he's going to send his spirit. They know the Father's going to, they don't know when. And they pray. What are they praying for? We don't know. I mean, we could speculate. Maybe, maybe they're praying for this gift to come. 
even though God has said it's going to come, they're still praying, oh God, send this gift. Maybe they're praying as they're praying because God, Jesus, has commissioned them and said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. We looked at this last week. Then to the ends of the earth. Maybe they're praying about that mission. Maybe they're praying and saying, okay, God, what does that look like for us? We don't know exactly, but they gather to pray. Wait does not mean inactivity. As they wait, they fellowship. As they wait, they pray. And then Peter, note, he quotes from Scripture. He quotes from Scripture in a moment here. And as they wait, they read Scripture. And the Scripture they had is what? From the Old Testament. So they're diving into the Old Testament. What are they likely looking for? Well, Peter's about to quote two Messianic portions of Scripture. What are they looking for? They're looking for the Messianic promises. They haven't written the New Testament yet. These are the people writing the New Testament for the most part. And they haven't written it yet. And so as they wait, they're diving into the Old Testament. They're excited. They're looking. Where are the Messianic promises? What are the promises that we've held on to as Jews for centuries or millennium? Waiting for the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. And they're diving in looking. Verse 18. So with payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong, his body burst open with all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akadema, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, that's Psalm 69, and let another, may another take his place of leadership, that's Psalm 109. Therefore, verse 21, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of those must become a witness with us to the resurrection. So they're praying. They're gathering in fellowship. They're searching through the Old Testament for messianic passages. And as they do so, Peter gets up. He says this scripture has to be fulfilled. That the Holy Spirit spoke about long ago through David concerning Judas who was the guide for Jesus' arrest. These are back, back to verses 15 and 16. He was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. And so then they go about it. How are they going to fill Jesus, uh, Judas's shoes? What, what is this going to look like? And they offer a few thoughts. It says, well, one, we need to find someone who, this is verse 21, who's been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. Then they clarify it beginning from John's baptism to the time of the ascension, the time he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. He said, we're looking for someone who's been with Jesus, with us, with the entire ministry. Remember, it was more than just the disciples. There were crowds that followed Jesus. There were people more than just those that were there, more than just the 12 that walked with Jesus and that were with him for a whole length of his ministry, that were constantly showing up. At times, Jesus would what? He tells some of the crowd to go away. He let the crowd know that, man, if you're just here because you want a miracle, if you're just here because you want me to be your genie in the bottle, it's like, you've got the wrong guy. That's not who I am. I'm not here to be your genie in the bottle. I'm here to be your Lord and Savior. And he'd then say things like, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Or he'd tell people things like, if you really want to follow me, he said, well, well, you need to hate your brother, mother, sister, father. Like he's saying, your love for me should look so great that everything else looks like hatred because your love for me is that deep. And 
people in the crowd would just walk away. So they say, we need someone who hasn't done that. They never walked away. They've been with us from the beginning. They've been a witness to the resurrection. And they actually explain it from John's baptism to the time he was taken up. So these are the criteria so that they can be a witness to the resurrection of the person they're going to replace. So verse 23, they nominate two men. Joseph called uh, Bersabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the 11 apostles. I'm going to pause there for a moment. So one of the things we need to think about is what we do with Judas. Because Matthew has Judas buying a field and hanging himself with, with the money. Like Judas hangs himself and dies. And here it says that he falls headlong and his intestines fall out. So what happens? Like what, what, what do we do with those two accounts? Well, I mean, I think they're the same thing. I think, I think Luke just gets a little more graphic. He doesn't say he hung himself, but I think the idea was everyone knew he hung himself. Matthew said it. And in hanging himself, either as he hung himself, he hung himself so violently that he cut part of his neck open, and in doing so, uh, some of his intestines spilled out. Or, uh, you know, the tree branch broke, he fell from a fair ways, hit his head on something, splitting his head and body partly open, and blood and intestines spilling out. I, I don't know which it was, but the whole idea was he died violently, it's graphic, and everyone's like, whoa, don't go near that place. Like God's judgment is there. And so people were like, stay, it's, they even call it field of blood, like stay away from that. Like stay away from that. And so I think it's very similar to resurrection accounts where we're seeing at times different accounts from different people as they encounter Jesus. You can fold it all together into a chronological order. I don't think that's hard in the resurrection accounts at all. I think it's actually quite simple. It's one of the things people say disprove the authenticity of scripture, but I'm like, not at all. Um, you know, because in, in John's account, of course, you have Peter and John ending up there. In other accounts, you have the women ending up there. But when Peter and John get there, the women have already been there. Anyway, all that said is to say, you just have to read through them, and you can write it out in chronology, right? It's the same here. Matthew tells us he hung himself. Luke doesn't say that here, but Luke's clear that it was a gruesome, bloody death. So they pick these two men, and they cast lots. Woo! Should we do that next week? So what is casting of lots? We don't know. Like, we have no clue. And it's several places in the Bible. I mean, sometimes it's done by non-believers, right? When they're on the boat, Jonah's on the boat with the men, and they're there. And as they're on the boat with Jonah, and they wake Jonah up because the great storm is violent, and the boat is about to, like, be heaved into pieces. And what do they do? They cast lots to find out who's responsible for the storm. And the lot falls to Jonah. Jesus is naked on the cross. They've taken his garment, his body's off. What did the soldiers do? They cast lots to determine who gets his clothes. But it's found all through Scripture. I mean, just look up casting lots in, in a Bible gateway, and you'll find it in a variety of places. Proverbs 18, 18 says this, casting the lot settles disputes and keeps ones and keeps strong opponents apart. So I know Christians will talk about how we need to cast lots. It says it in Proverbs. like, Sure, we don't know what it was. We have no clue. Right? Now, somebody's going to come to you after the service and say, well, Dwayne, I think it was this. Sure, you do. Nice. We don't know. Like, we literally don't know what casting lots is. We have no clue what it is. But it's other parts of the Bible. Joshua 18, as they're determining 
who gets different portions of the promised land. You can read, right, in Joshua 18, what did they do? They cast lots to make some of that determination. It's one of the things they did, and God directed it. Nehemiah 11, as they're going back to Jerusalem, and some people are staying in the nearby towns, and a group needs to settle in Jerusalem and reestablish it. The temple's been rebuilt um, by Haggai. Uh, now the wall has been rebuilt by Nehemiah. And what happens? They cast lots, and every tenth person, their family, is going to move back into Jerusalem. Others are allowed to stay in the periphery, but to rebuild the city, one out of ten is going to move into Jerusalem. And they cast lots, and the lot just falls to you and says, okay, you're the family. You're, you're going you're gonna to move into Jerusalem, right? It'd be like me pointing out, and it's every tenth you know, seat in the room, right? You're going to go. You're, you're going to go, and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem. So you find this all through Scripture. We don't know what it was, but it's not only used by non-believers, it's also used by Christians. And as it's used by Christians, God seems to direct it, and he seems to use through it. So note, they prayed. So, so I want you to know this. They've been in fellowship. They've been in the Word. They've been in prayer. Right? Prayer is going to be mentioned all through Acts. You'll find prayer mentioned in nearly every chapter in Acts, either because someone has prayed or because there is a, a prayer. So you either have a prayer that's there or prayer is mentioned. Here it's twice. You find out they are praying, and then there is a prayer. Right? The prayer is, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of the two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, uh, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he's added to their number, and he becomes uh, the next apostle. So, now there's controversy. Some people would say, well, they shouldn't have done that. Right? Paul was the next apostle. Right? Luke will verify that in, in his gospel. Paul will, uh, Peter, sorry, will verify that. Peter will say that what Paul writes is scripture. Other disciples and apostles will verify that Paul is it. So now there's 13 of them. So should they not have picked Matthias? Like, is something wrong here? The answer is no. Some people would say the disciples were sinning here. I don't think at all. Right? They're praying. They're fellowshipping. They're just, as they're waiting for the Spirit to come, they're, they're diving into Scripture. So they're examining the Bible. They're praying and they're fellowshipping. That sounds like a group of godly people discerning God's will. And as they're discerning God's will, God leads them to this. And then God chooses Paul. He'll say it himself as one abnormally born in terms of, of the way that he comes in. He doesn't fit the qualifications, the way that, that they had set them out. He wasn't there for the whole ministry of Jesus on earth, but he does see the resurrected Savior because Jesus actually appears to him in a vision. And so that's what happens here. So what does this teach us this morning? What is, what is this telling us today as we take a look at this passage? Well, there are times in your life where you know God will be calling you to do something and he'll just tell you to wait. He'll just tell you to wait. He'll just tell you to wait. It could be a witness with someone. It could be maybe that he's going to use you in some way. And you're convinced of that. You're convinced that this is something that God wants you to do. And, and you're just going to have to wait. The timing's not going to be right. God hasn't shown and displayed his power the way he wants to yet for you. And it's going to be hard. The disciples had no clue how long they were going to wait. And what happens often for us, we wait with inactivity. We just do nothing. And that's not what they do. They fellowship. They pray. 
They search the scriptures. And they obey. They obey. They wait. God's told us he's going to do this, and they obey. They wait. They gather for fellowship, encouraging each other as they wait. They're like, God's going to do this. God's promised this. We're going to encourage each other as we wait. They pray. God, we're waiting. Would you show up? God, you're waiting. Would you move? God, you said this. Would you do it? They pray. And then they do act. As they're waiting, God reveals to them to choose the next apostle, and they do so. Because sometimes in that inactivity, in waiting for whatever that thing is that God's calling you to do, there's still things you can be doing in the interim. There's still things you can be doing as you wait. It's not always nothing. And sometimes in that waiting period, it, it might feel like it is, it is deflating because you're like, well, I'm waiting for this. And God says, no, I want you to do this. When I, when I came to our church 26 and a half years ago, 20, 27 and a half years ago, I came here to volunteer. And, um, and so I knew the building really well. And, and we, we were telling stories about this the other night, Amy and I, with some people. I mean, I, this is wrong on every level, okay? But in our early years, we would, we would have these youth games called sardines. And somebody would go and hide, and other people would find them and hide with them. Now, that's not wrong. What is wrong is this. Um, we would hide in the basement of that old church. Now, if you've ever been in the basement, it's slightly dug out. There's a couple of furnaces, and the majority of it is dirt. dirt. And we would bring in exterminators um, because the roads were so bad. And so I remember one New Year's Eve. It was the New Year's Eve before I became the pastor of the church. Um, I remember very clearly because we were holding a youth event. We had 65 youth at the church, mainly non-Christians. And I was going to be the pastor the next morning. It was a Saturday night, and I had to preach the next morning. So I told them I had a 2 o'clock curfew. Back then, I had a lot of energy. I know you think I have a lot of energy now, but it does not compare. And so, and so I, I, would, I got into the basement, and I climbed up on a piece of cardboard up into the, into the dirt area so that the youth could find me, and I heard scurrying. It was the greatest feeling of my life. I don't know what scurried, but it scurried, and it went away. And we didn't have skedaddle, Jordan. didn't exist. So, I, I, I mean, I don't even know if the exterminators had been in then. So I'm up on this piece of cardboard, and, and people start to look, and, and, they, and they start to search. And I knew back then that something had to be done with this building. Like, I remember being in that basement as the pastor and standing in the basement and seeing water coming in because, if, I mean, if you go in there, there's the, the, the parts of the building, there's pillars, but are just sitting on the dirt. Almost all of it is just sitting on the dirt. And you could, in a, in a big rainstorm, you could just see the water pouring in and pouring on the ground under it. I remember one day being down there with an engineer who said, like, this is not good. Like, this, this is not good for the foundation of this building. In any way, this is not good. I remember going through with our architect who said, you should really be supporting those beams as they were assessing the building. Like, these beams need support. Why? They said, or one day your congregation may just be down in the basement during a service. Okay, let's support the beams. Let's, some people went down there and supported them. And I felt 26 and a half years ago, the Lord said to me, you're not going to leave this place until you're in a new place. I didn't know how he would do it. I didn't know what it would look like. It took way longer than I thought, like way longer than I thought. It took 25 years, 25 and a half years till we were in this place. I didn't know it would look like this. I, I didn't know it would have housing. But at that time, I went to our elders and said, I don't think this is where God wants us to be. I don't mean geographic location, I mean building. 
And, and there's big jokes. Like, like you can go back into our history. Back in 2007, we started our capital campaign thinking maybe we could buy land around us and maybe we could renovate and architects came and engineers came. And, and all the way along, we just said, okay, God, we need to wait on you. We need to wait on you. And we tried. And we prayed and we thought and we, and we waited and we continued to look for God's provision. We weren't inactive. We outgrew the one facility. And I remember being at the elders meeting. We were all like, okay, what are we going to do? And we tried two services in that old building. It was really hard to do because it was so small. And so there were so few people in each service. And so we said, we don't want to go back to that. And I remember at the meeting, somebody had said, Bert was one of the elders then, Steve, Peter, and, and, and at the meeting, we were in Paul, I remember this, we were in Paul Havercroft's living room for our retreat, and, and, um, and we were praying and thinking, and someone said, let's call around and see if there's anyone in the area that will allow us to rent their facility so we can all be together. And there was this thing we had called Fist of Five, and, and if you threw out your fist and, and you kind of had one figure out, it meant you really weren't in. If you threw all of your hands in, it meant you were in. And Bert, who was never quick on the draw, but I love Bert, Bert just did this. He just did boom. He said, that's what God wants us to do. And we all were like, yeah, that's it. And we called around. We finally got to the school board, right? And we, we tried everything. We went to the Chamber of Commerce. We went to La Union Station. I mean, we went to a whole bunch of places this area. We went to visit to see if we can rent. And the school board said, we'll rent it to you. You know the story. I'm not going to get into all of it right now. And we'll give it to you for free. We're like, well, we weren't asking for it for free. They said, no, you didn't ask for it for free, but we're going to give it to you for free. And we're like, we want to make sure you understand what we're doing here. We're worshiping, we know. For you, it's free. And we just saw God's hand along every step of the way. Even in this, I mean, at times when we were building this, and the amount of money just kept going up and up, and I'm like, Lord, you kind of called us to raise 16 million, and we're at 22 million, and this is just overwhelming. And never did we want to have a mortgage of this size. Right? And, and, and the other day when Jordan Switzer was going to talk to everyone about it, he said, well, hey, you know what? And we've had a great congregation, right? No one here has been complaining about it. No one's come to us and say, why did we do this? Everyone said, this is what God has called us to do. And the whole mortgage is for people that needed a place to live that are living beside us as neighbors. That's the whole mortgage. And we've housed people who were living precariously, some from encampments, in this building with us. And we all said, well, this is what God's called us to do. But we still have felt, our elders have felt, we have felt, we said it last week at the business meeting, that God's not done yet. God's not done yet. And I'm hoping you're praying about it as we're waiting for God to weigh down the day. I'm hoping our donors that are external to the church aren't praying about this more than we are. Because we all know we have this chance between now and Christmas to eliminate as much that as possible. And it would be embarrassing for me if they're praying more than we're praying. And so we pray. God, how are you going to provide? God, what are you going to do? God, what is this going to look like? And as we pray, we become part of the answers to that prayer. We, we diligently in this moment say, God, what can I be doing? And then as God directs you, act. And so this man back in March said, okay, we'll be praying. Back in the midsummer, said, get back to me in the fall. And in the fall, said, I'm going to donate a half a million dollars. And then when he sent his email yesterday to me saying, hey, you know, I can mail this, or, you know, do you want to come pick it up? I'm like, hey, man, I'd love to pick it up. Um, I actually really enjoy this guy. He's amazing to fellowship with. And we'll sit in his office for an hour, and, and he's an elder in his church, and he'll just talk about what God is doing. Um, and I love that. And so we'll meet, and we'll fellowship, and we'll talk, and and and. And, and it was so encouraging. I got the email that said, hey, I've been inviting some friends to come alongside. Like, this guy that doesn't go here, right? 
who's never been inside this building to worship, whose kids aren't a part of our ministry. He said, I've been inviting some friends to come along as well. Let's get this thing down to 1.5 million by Christmas. Because God did this, amen? Only God could do this. Only God could raise $20 million now. $20 million of the $22 million. Is that not staggering? If you don't think that's staggering, just Google what other ministries fundraise. God has done this in a way that is mind-blowing. $20 million raised. Only he could do that. And what if between now and Christmas, another million comes in? What if it all comes in? Because God's people just said, we're going to pray. God's told us he could do this. And so sometimes there's this thing you sense God's calling you to do, whatever it would be. And between now and then, there's a space. The space is not just empty. You fellowship and tell the stories of Jesus. You gather for prayer and you just seek the face of the Lord. You study the word diligently, looking for what God is saying. And as God says it, you do it until he shows up in a powerful way. Would you pray with me? You are a good God, and you love us. And you love us with this eternal, unending love in the person of Jesus Christ. And God, all of us today confess and admit that it's hard to wait. It is. And God, it's especially hard to wait when we're convinced that you have called us to something, whatever that something is. And we want it now, God. We want it now. And yet you've told us to wait. God, in that period of waiting, may we rely on you. May we pray. May we search your word. May we fellowship. May we remain obedient. Until you show up in a way that all of us say, this is simply the hand of the Lord. We ask this in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.